0: It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally near. And now, and it's time to dream, sit back and enjoy life, The Two True Freaks Internet Radio start, Broadcast And they're not gonna hold it down no more No, they're not gonna change my mind Mr. Scott, shall
1: we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. Aye.
0: The final frontier begins in this hall.
2: Let's explore it together. We're going to stumble, make
3: mistakes, I'm sure, but we're going to learn from those mistakes. There are 400 billion stars in our galaxy. We've only explored a tiny fraction. You have a lot of
1: work to do. We were explorers then.
3: When all this is over,
0: when Earth is safe. I want you to get back to that job.
2: Of all the captains will sit in this chair. I can't imagine anything being more proud than I am right now.
1: I've been told that people are calling us heroes.
0: When it comes to my crew, you won't get any argument from me. I've always
2: been much better at avoiding farewells than giving, so I'm not even going
3: to try. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 49 of Star Trek Enterprise. I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my usual two cohorts, Mister Andy Leland.
2: I've still been dragged, kicking and screaming.
3: and mr sean you
2: you swore to me the show got
1: good (laughs) it'll get good trust me hey how's it going today paul
3: i think it got good you know uh, your your mileage may vary
2: (laughs) hello everybody Uh,
3: i am a fan you know you know what let's let's jump right into that let's get into a debate about the quality of the show you don't think it got
2: good andy um I, I watched, I mean we've been watching this obviously, but originally I only watched the first season or so before I got bored of it, I don't know what it was, I think a lot of it was my preconceptions, when it was first announced as a prequel I got quite excited, because I interpreted that as they were going to do Christopher Pike, or better! they were going to do Robert April and lead into Christopher Pike and I had this old grandiose idea that the show would run seven seasons and the first three seasons because maybe they only did a three year mission at that point I don't know, would be April and then at the end of season three they would hand over to Christopher Pike who would do a five year mission or whatever and then slowly throughout his final couple of years you'd start bringing in all the characters that we saw in the cage and the last scene of the last episode however long it ran for you'd see Spock and I had this brilliant idea that that's what they were going to do and then when it came on and it was like this isn't that and I was kind of disappointed in what it wasn't but also even now it doesn't look like a prequel to the original Star Trek at all and there is a fan theory for this have we talked about this before do you two know this there's a fan theory that by going back in time in First Contact, the next generation crew changed history so that Earth technological advancements were greater than they were originally, so that Enterprise altered. So Enterprise doesn't look like the original because of that. And that's why the 2009 J.J. Abrams movie also has more advanced technology than what we saw in the original Trek. Now, it's a good theory, but I actually think the technology in the original Trek, is more advanced than anything in any other series. Take the 60s aesthetic out of it. Sulu could fly that shit by pressing two buttons. And by the time you get to next gen, Data's got his hands dancing all over the display panels. So in terms of what the technology could do, the original show is more advanced than any of them. But that's the fan theory anyway.
3: Well, I I think the episode we're covering... Today directly goes to that fan theory because it does directly relate to Star Trek First Contact. So I I, I think we're going to touch on that a little bit more in depth. I think it's an interesting theory and uh, certainly one that was not overt uh, and and stated uh, in the show. But I, I, I think it's an interesting theory and it could have some merit to it.
2: Yeah, it's also one of the... The the, the thing I think that's given a bit more weight is that Enterprise is now the only in-continuity Star Trek series with the new films that are currently ongoing. Enterprise still happened.
3: Yes. Um, As far as your other criticisms or theories, uh, I kind of liked the way they went with, you know, basically the absolute initiating of the uh, of, of the exploration mission, mission and, and having it actually occur before they were ready for it to occur because of the uh, Klingon contact that they had in, in uh, Broken, Broken Bow, I believe is the first yeah. episode. Uh, I, I like the way they play that. I, I like Captain Archer as a character. I, I think this is another show where the supporting cast, although not as, uh, not as rich as what we get in Enterprise, but they are layered characters. Uh, and 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 each have their own personality, and and you know they're not just cookie cutter, and and they all have a certain amount of charisma to them, as far as I'm concerned. So I I, I like the way the show played up played out. Uh, they did take a little while to find their feet. I think the first season was more of a let's go on an episodic journey. Second season, I felt like they really kind of did start to get their feet under them a little bit, and then the third episode, as we'll see when we get to that, which we're not too far away from it now. Yeah. Uh, is a season-long arc and, and really something that they never did in any other Star Trek uh, iteration and I think did it really, really well here. Then they came back for season four and they hit on a lot more uh, interesting concepts again uh, including the uh, the alternate universe, uh, which they eventually got to, mm-hmm. or the mirror universe. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff, a lot of rich stories to be uh, mined yet. Yeah, what do you well, think, Sean?
2: I was
1: going to say, you know, the unfortunate thing about Enterprise is the fact that it never got to play out the entire seven seasons like all the other shows did, because I don't know if you guys saw on the Internet recently. There was a uh, like a little blurb on Facebook about you know what Enterprise would have become if it had been allowed to go on a couple more seasons. They were going to go into more of the dealings with the Klingon or not the Klingon, the Federation Romulan War. Which I thought, you know, was a great tie-in to the original series and would have been really done. Yeah, the first season does kind of drag because they really don't know the direction they want to go to. But by this point in season two, I think the characters have gotten, you know, their space legs, so to speak. And they've kind of fleshed, each, uh, fleshed the characters out. And by the third season, they're really firing on all cylinders and things are really, you know, taking off the show. So... I think unlike, you know, just like, well, just like the previous iterations of like Next Gen and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, it took a couple of seasons for the shows really to start getting good. And I think Enterprise actually, you know, despite all of the, the setbacks and the kind of negative things that you know, were placed upon it, you know, it actually started getting good earlier than some of the other iterations of it.
2: Well the the thing you mentioned about the first season the reason it was called Enterprise And not Star Trek is the entire first season was originally supposed to be about the political machinations and maneuverings of building the Enterprise and everything that that took and how that all happened and they were trying to strip away from this idea that space travel was easy and the final episode of the first season would have ended with the launch of Enterprise so the reason they dropped the title was there was no star trekking in the first season And then I don't know how far into development they were, but I know Paramount nixed that and said, no, we want the Enterprise launched by the end of the pilot. Hmm. I I also like the way the show took the Vulcan race and basically
3: stripped them of their halos and made them a political uh, race that sometimes was out for its own good and wasn't necessarily always concerned with the greater good of the universe. Sometimes they were concerned with the greater good of Vulcan and that's all they were concerned with. And I kind of liked that. I, I think the show had some detailed storytelling some layered stories layered as I said layered characters uh, this particular episode that we're gonna hit on uh, I think the only character that you really get some feeling for is the doctor
0: Dr mm-hmm. Uh
3: everybody else is kind of put a little bit into the background including Captain Archer but how can any geek? <clears throat> worth his his medal. uh have a problem with scott Bakula being a captain of the enterprise
1: oh yeah i think Bakula is the captain you know was was a brilliant brilliant move and i'm certain people will be out there saying oh well he was in quantum leap you know he was you know he was from that show it's it's not fair that he gets to do that you know amazing sci-fi series and then come in to do star trek as well i, I thought he did a, a wonderful job as archer so i don't have any problems with the character as i've said before
2: no I have I have no problem with, with Bakula and he's not Sam Beckett in this show no he's a completely different character showing what a good actor he is
3: yeah and I, I think he, he had opportunities on this show to stretch his acting legs a little bit again not this particular episode because he's not a focus in this episode No, although he does they, you know I mean he does have his moments where he has to make some tough decisions uh, and and you know, and, and gets to shine for moments, but he doesn't have a, a spotlight put on him at any point. No, unfortunately. The, the, but
1: there
2: will be other episodes, and there have been. Well, some people had a problem with um, breasts being portrayed as a sex pot. <laughs> as those of us that grew up with a mock time will attest, Klingon women were always pretty sexy. Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> so are you saying that if she could have, she would have gone with Shtan? i wouldn't
2: have gone with stomp but i'd have stuck with to <laughs> i said klingon i meant vulcan you both knew what i meant yeah yeah
3: i know what you meant no I, I, and and i don't think they tried to hide the you know i, I think they came right out and they were very overt with the sexiness on her uh, yes. i think she was yes for za- exactly that reason i think they were trying to once again mine the area that uh seven of nine did for them Mm-hmm. well i think and, and uh, I think ahead, I think
1: I think T'Pol was basically an offshoot of Seven of Nine. If Seven of Nine hadn't been such a standout breakaway character in Voyager, I don't think they would have, you know, got this character to play T'Pol. They you know, they could have gotten a, a Spock, another Spock analog, but you know the fact that they went with you know a very attractive female, I think, directly related to the fact that Seven of Nine was such a breakout character in Voyager.
3: And, and she wasn't the breakout character that Seven of Nine was, but I'm very happy that they didn't just make it another Spock analog. I, I, you know, I think we saw a little bit of that with Tuvok. I don't think we needed to see it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think you know we're much we're much better off, and we got a much uh, more a much different take on the Vulcan character by having a female who showed once again, I think, in in the way she was written and in the way she acted the role. It it wasn't that they don't have emotion, it's that they don't allow their emotions to rule them in any way. That they they submerge them.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, she was a big fan of the original, so she brought that from Leonard Nimmo's portrayal.
3: Yes, yes. I I remember that in interviews early on. I remember her talking about how, as she was growing up, her dad was a big fan and that he exposed her to it. and, And that she grew up watching it all the time and and so uh, yeah i I think you know it wasn't somebody who got cast in the role and then said oh let me go watch these shows this was somebody who had a love for the character coming into it Mm. or a love for the series coming into it so any anything more on the overall series that we want to uh, hit on or should we dive into our synopsis of our episode let's do it upn next wednesday a startling discovery on earth leads to enterprise's first battle with the ultimate enemy you will be assimilated
0: we've been boarded.
3: resistance is futile I've been infected they set us up an all new enterprise regeneration
2: UPN next Wednesday at 87 Central
3: okay well we are doing episode uh, well as we said 49 it's season 2 episode 23 which originally aired on May 7th of 2003 regeneration is the title of our episode and just as a uh, in advance this came out not too long after uh for, or this this is a sequel of sorts to first contact uh my sum, my summary of the episode is not self-written i am a uh, I am plagiarizing uh, very much here from star trek.com An Arctic research team on Earth discovers debris from an alien vessel, nearly a century old, buried in a glacier along with bodies of two cybernetically enhanced humanoids. Once those beings are thawed for investigation, they come to life and abduct the scientists and their transport vessel. After visiting the research site, Admiral Forrest calls in Enterprise to find the transport. On the way, the crew receives a distress call from a Tarkalian freighter, which is under attack from an unknown species. Once they track down the freighter, the crew notes that it is being attacked by a modified version of the Arctic transport. Enterprise fends off the transport and brings the two Tarkalian survivors on board. Phlox notes that they should live, but that nanoprobes from the cybernetic species have infiltrated their systems. They are being transformed into a cybernetic hybrid, and the formerly human researchers are most likely going through a similar transformation. Flox is attempting to come up with something that will slow the nanoprobe's progress, though Flox doesn't believe these beings are a, are a danger to the crew. Archer orders Reed to post a guard in Sigbe. As Enterprise continues to search for the transport, Archer realizes that there's something familiar about this incident. He points to a speech Zephyrin Cochran made years ago, wherein Cochrane referred to cybernetic creatures from the future. T'Pol is skeptical of Cochran's comments, but Archer remains troubled. Cochran said that the creature's ultimate goal was to enslave the human race. Back in sickbay, Phlox is attacked by one of the cybernetic beings who injects him with, strange, with some strange tubules. The two altered Tarkalians also attack the security guard and escape. When Phlox comes in, he realizes that he's been infected with nanoprobes. While he works furiously to figure out a treatment, Archer orders Reed and his security contingent to scour the ship for the altered Tarkalians. As they search, the beings manage to modify most of Enterprise's primary systems. When Reed finally tracks them down, phase pistols seem to have no effect on them. In fact, they're able to adapt very quickly and shield themselves from weapons fire. Desperate, Archer is forced to seal the modified Tarkalians off from the rest of the ship and eject them into space. Soon, Enterprise manages to locate the transport and sets out after it. While Tripp and Reed prepare for the inevitable encounter with the strange beings, Archer and T'Pol wonder if they'll be able to save the now altered humans aboard the transport. Meanwhile, Phlox has figured out a way to reverse the transformation. He will need to subject himself to an intense dose of radiation. If the procedure should fail, he warns Archer, the captain will have to end Phlox's life. The crew finally tracks down the altered transport, which has increased in size. The transport targets the modified systems on Enterprise, effectively shutting the ship down. An incoming transmission informs the crew that they will be assimilated. Resistance is futile, but Archer isn't ready to give up just yet. He and Reed transport over to the ship, determined to shut it down. While there, they encounter the now altered Arctic researchers, as well as other cybernetic life forms that used to be human. Reed and Archer head for the ship's EPS manifold, fighting off these lifeforms all the way. They manage to attach several charges to the manifold, then transport back to Enterprise. Once they do, the charges explode, ripping through the vessel. Still, Reed notes that the systems on the transport are quickly restoring themselves. With Enterprise's weapons coming back online, Archer orders Reed to target the transport's warp core. Enterprise fires and the transport explodes. Meanwhile, Phlox has managed to cure himself using the radiation. His experience has left him somewhat unsettled, however. He tells Archer and T'Pol that while he was infected, he seemed to have had a connection with the rest of the aliens, as if he was part of a collective consciousness. They seemed to be trying to send some sort of message. As Archer later deduces, the message was actually a set of coordinates. The creatures were telling their homeworld how to find Earth. Though the danger seems to have passed for the time being, Archer worries that he's only postponed the inevitable invasion. And that is the end of Regeneration. Now is this the first time you ever saw this one, Andy?
2: No, I think I caught this one because it got a lot of publicity regarding the Borg being in it. And I liked that the Enterprise cast aren't even in it for for the teaser and the first act. It's all about un- uncovering the Borg and in the Arctic and relating it to first contact. Bonita Fredrissi is one of the scientists who's probably best known for being the boss in Chuck, but did this because John Billingsley's her husband. Yes. Oh, really?
1: Hmm. See, I, uh, I I enjoyed the sort of John Carpenter's thing type aspect to the opening, uh, like the opening segment of the show. You know, it does kind of disturb me that they fall into the same traps that all the characters in John Carpenter's thing did, you know, oh, we found these things in the ice, let's bring them out and let's bring them in here, don't worry about isolating them or anything, even though that, you know, we've seen, you know, a removed arm from this being you know, just sort of start worrying up, and it's got a big spiky, spinny you know, death drill on it so, but you know, I I, I like the idea that it it was going to kind of be a sort of uh, a possible horror vibe. And that's one of the things that uh, the Borg are
3: meant to do in the series. So good. Yeah. I I love the horror vibe in this. And I think the first third of the movie is written as a horror movie and directed as a horror movie. Uh, And and I, I I really like that feel and I, I like, you know, I, you did hit on the point that basically they make the stupid decision, but it's not just that they just make the stupid decision and that's it they actually debate it you know they they know the the, the real what they should really do is discussed, uh and and they it gets dismissed so it's not just that they went on doing something stupid and you're thinking don't they think this don't they realize it and and i even like the fact that the one scientist points out they don't look very friendly and we don't have to have the obligatory oh don't judge a book by its cover discussion they don't Mm -hmm. bother going there yes they do look threatening i'm sorry end of story we don't have to you know get into a whole uh
2: political debate there no exactly (laughs) yeah these guys don't look like they're going to do us any favors let's not take them inside but you know
3: what you got to wonder from a story point of view had they done what he originally said kept them on ice now would they have potentially brought them somewhere where the borg when revived because they were going to be revived eventually anyway would have maybe overwhelmed the defenses wherever they were because the people holding them would still wouldn't have known what to do they would have brought them maybe into a regular security compound where the Borg might have had the ability to escape anyway and would they have then had access to a greater number of people to uh assimilate and would would the story have maybe ended even worse you no, know, that's that's a very good point. I mean, if they would have,
1: you know, you've got to assume that this was a Starfleet sanctioned expedition. That if they had kept them on ice and brought them back to Starfleet headquarters, think of the uh, the damage that could have wrought if you had a couple of Borg get get a hold of Starfleet headquarters
3: and get a hold of you know all the people in there. Yeah, that's. I mean, you know, who knows? You could play what if all day, but mm-hmm. certainly. Uh, the way this story ended, and you know, it's, it's, as a prequel, there is a certain amount of pre, uh, predetermination as to what's going to happen in stories. But as it ended, it, it didn't really change history
2: dramatically. But had they done it differently, maybe it would have. Uh, yeah, yeah see, I kind of disagree with that. We've, we've got it on record, though, that we have had knowledge with a Borg before. Even if we never actually find out the name, there's enough assimilation mentioned and the description of them. That it kind of makes it that when Picard meets them in Q who you've got to wonder why he has no record of it. So that it doesn't alter history on a big level, but you're certainly you're getting to Q who and there should be something in the in the history banks about at some point we discovered this cybernetic organism that talked about assimilation. Because data only searches on keywords. Whenever he sits at his computer and searches for information in the past, as have we ever done this before, presumably you would have typed in assimilation. Well, you've got to keep in mind the whole uh,
3: timey-wimey aspect of things, though, because these are the Borg that were left after the episode of First Contact. And those are Borg who traveled back in time from the First Contact time period in Next Generation, which would be before q who. Well, after... so, no, it would be after, no. It would be when first contact takes place. Excuse me. Afterwards, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it
1: after after, after Q who? So. Yeah. But...
3: So 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 in in theory, from a time travel point of view, the events of Q who happened, then first contact happened. These Borg went back in time, and now much like the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, we're creating almost a new reality here. So and the events. So
2: you you subscribe to the time travel idea that. Alternate realities are created instead of the linear progression of this has to happen to create the future that we're in.
3: Well, if if we're going to go with the Star Trek that has been given to us for the last whatever five, six years, uh, they are saying it's alternate realities. Which fits in with that theory. Yes. That maybe having the Borg. It's a theory that, quite frankly, I had not thought of
2: when I first saw this episode. Yeah, but by having the Borg, maybe we did evolve more technologically than we did originally. Oh, time travel yeah. stories make your head hurt, don't they?
3: Mm-hmm. they yeah. did, and that's what's so wonderful about them, though. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> but, and, and from from a one point of view, is, you know uh, Zephron Cochrane did discuss the Borg, uh, but they dismissed him. So you know they dismissed it as you know yeah he's a guy who drinks heavily who's talking about this race and we gonna just ignore it and because because we know he makes up stories. <laughs> so, so he wasn't taken seriously at all, which is a
1: shame because if they'd taken him seriously, well, maybe you know if they had taken him seriously, we would seen you know uh, a much a much more severe buildup of weaponry and defenses and you know technology that the Federation would have gotten to because they had this encounter with this species that was uh,
3: could could easily overthrow the ship with just two people. So, in theory. Could that be the alternate universe created in the Mirror Universe?
2: Hmm. Interesting. See, now, I've always... There's a a theory that John Byrne put forward on his website that in his head, the Mirror Universe was the alternate universe that Kirk and Spock stopped from happening in City on the Edge of Forever. The universe where Edith Keeler saves, doesn't get killed, and therefore prevents America from entering the war, leading to a world where Germany win... Ultimately leads to the mirror universe, which I thought was a fantastic theory.
3: That is that is very cool to think of.
2: No, I I could I could get behind that. That's an interesting idea.
1: Of course, it's Burn. He's he's very clever when coming up with that kind of stuff.
3: But that's I mean it's it's the Marvel Comics what if theory of uh, of the universe where every decision, uh, there's a universe out there where it was where it played out both ways and each time that happens there's an alternate universe created and therefore there's an infinite number of alternate universes out there
1: or it's like sliders which is crap (laughs) (laughs) sorry yeah well
3: i mean and and like like andy said though you know that so if you start contemplating every possibility based on time travel especially if you do it in this uh theory that that there's alternate universes created you know eventually your head's going to heard enough that they're going to have to put you in an institute somewhere
1: yeah exactly you
3: know I, I mean there is the alternate theory where uh you know the ultimate fates are inevitable and yeah you can you can you know that 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 time is a a river and basically if you go back in time and do something it's like throwing a pebble in the river yeah it might change the stream for that tiny little area but then ultimately it's going to go right back on course mm-hmm
1: this is something they, we they, should we should cover on a Doctor Who podcast, probably.
3: <laughs> what, well, time travel? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, who was it? Somebody posted on Facebook this week about uh, uh, something about time travel, and, and it was somebody who is a big Doctor Who fan, and they were like, poo-pooing time travel, and they were like, really? Really? You're, you're going <laughs> to say uh, that time travel is a bad thing? I don't remember. But somebody did it uh, on wow.
1: Facebook. I didn't catch that, unfortunately.
3: But uh, I mean, one thing is I thought the Borg were portrayed on the negative end. I thought they were portrayed a little inconsistently in this story. Uh, they very quickly adapt to Malcolm's weapon when he first goes after them. Then he just basically creates a stronger weapon and they don't seem to adapt to it at all, which is not really Borg-like.
2: Well, and it... No, because in Best of Both Worlds, don't they say we have two, maybe three shots at most? Yeah, and before, that was with the
3: modulating weapon. Yeah,
2: before they will adapt to it. And Reed doesn't know that at this point. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a little inconsistent. And also
3: the amount of time... It takes to be assimilated is really exaggerated in here because we've seen situations where they get those tubules in them on on other episodes and they immediately begin to convert to borg and within a few minutes they're part of the collective and proceeding meanwhile you know dr flox has time to experiment and figure things out and cure himself Uh, That's just not consistent with what we've seen from the Borg in uh, other episodes. Unless we believe that maybe somehow these nanoprobes have been slowed by a century frozen in ice. Which is
1: possible. We could also go by the idea that Phlox's uh, biology is keeping the uh, nanoprobes at bay. He kind of mentioned that as... Uh, his immune system was trying to fight against the nanoprobes. So, you know, maybe, you know, you know, maybe different species have different reactions to the way the nanoprobes affect them. And some species, you know, don't have enough immune defenses to fight them off. So maybe it's just a Danubian thing or Dano- whatever race he is. I think it's, it's Danubian. Early. Danubian. That, that makes sense. Or that rings true. I'm not
3: even sure if that's the ring they right no. word, but. Somebody can email us if they. Oh yeah. If they, if <laughs> I'm sure they will. Uh,
2: I, I like I like Doctor Flux a lot in this one.
3: Mm-hmm. He, he's I, an excellent I, character. He's he's very similar to uh, Doctor Doctor uh, what's his name uh, the the hologram Doctor. Oh yeah. Z- the, the Robert Picardo. He yes. he has a very they they seem to be kindred spirits in many way many ways. Yeah, Flux is
1: my favorite character in this episode and maybe overall in the show. He's just he's just very no nonsense he he states things boldly uh you know and when he got assimilated i was like no i don't want to see this happen because he is he is by far one of my favorite characters in the show and i i don't know the whole being able to cure himself with radiation i think that works but you know it's gonna mess him up you know i i don't
3: know Maybe he'll get like the proportionate strength of a Borg. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Flox in many ways, as far as how he's written, not as sinister in many ways, but he's written similar to the character we just discussed on our other show, uh, Garrick. I think he always knows more than he's letting on. He's always got a a little tale to tell that has a subtext to it that kind of goes to the reality of what's happening, and I think he might be the uh, he, he might be the best character on the show. I, I agree with you on that, Sean. Hmm.
2: Yeah, he's certainly the best one in this episode, but that's largely because the majority of it takes place in sick bay, So he has a lot to do once we get past the, the opening, which is very reminiscent of um, Tomorrow Is Yesterday, which was the original Trek episode. It's one of the only ones that opens without you seeing any of the bridge crew. The fact that this went so long without you seeing the Enterprise crew actually amped up the tension. And I quite liked that a great deal. I'm not sold on the uniforms. I am still think these funny little jumpsuits don't really do it for me. But for, Dr. Flox was great. Even Malcolm Reed seemed to get quite a lot to do in this one.
1: I was going to say, you know, uh, Malcolm did have a lot to do in this. Uh, especially as being the security officer, you would expect that he would because he's having to take on these these beings who are trying to take over the ship and, you know, uh, they're they're a threat to him. So, yeah, he gets to do uh, not only a bit of, you know, fighting McFightenstein, but a bit of, you know, tech work as well, trying to figure out how he can get through the shielding on these beings. And I like the fact that eventually they come to the discussion that the shielding would be kind of an interesting thing if they could integrate that into themselves or if they could find a way to use that without, you know, having to be a part of this sort of weird alien species.
3: Yeah, I... I... I'm just—I was going to change it because I was going to touch on what uh, Andy said about the uniforms. I—I uh, I think the uniforms are effectively kind of just taking it, and you know, Starfleet hasn't been created yet. Really, it's—it's it's just showing at the infancy. They don't really have the gaudy uniforms, and I think that's really what they're doing. That this just supposed to be more, uh, you know, something that—that's easily worn while on duty as opposed to something fancy or, uh, you know, military. Um, and I, and I, I like just to touch on that a little further, that the fact that the ship really is portrayed as, and I think very well uh, as, as akin to being on a submarine. There is a certain claustrophobic feel and a small feel that you don't get in the later shows. And I think it plays well with, as time went on, they advanced the technology and they made it more roomy and more comfortable and more homey.
2: Yeah, the the jumpsuits are more NASA than they are military uniforms. See, I've always
1: got the jumpsuits, and maybe this is just because of my love in the show, I always got Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that may just be me, so I apologize for that. Have they always had a transporter?
3: I don't remember. Yeah,
2: they, they started with the transporter in the first episode, I believe, if my memory is correct. Yeah, See, I, I think I would have liked it if we'd seen them develop the transporter. And not have it straight away. I don't
3: well, know I, just... I, it, I'm trying to remember, and I'm thinking the first episode it was kind of like an experimental technology. It existed, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really in common use.
1: Yeah, they used it. They used it predominantly for uh, uh, non-organic stuff, you know, to beam up materials and stuff like that. It could be used to beam people, but yeah, they they it was. I think it was one of the ways that they sort of got it away from the original star trek you know which used the transporters frequently to go down to planets and whatever it, it allowed them to use shuttlecraft because the transporter technology wasn't quite there yet but in a pinch they could use it and i i, I have a note here that i really like the transporter effect having sort of that old school effect but also looking very i want to say tron like and having that sort of pixelated digital look as well i thought it was a neat transporter effect not having to see it all the time kind of makes it interesting when they do use it
2: yeah all right if we if we apply a nasa sensibility to the uniforms rather than a military standard yeah okay i'll go with that then i've I've changed my mind i like the jumpsuits well done pop (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna touch
3: on just the use of the borg a little bit because i think one of the big criticisms is people you know roll their eyes and says oh look they're going to the borg again uh you know why don't they develop their own villains and uh well first of all this is the only episode that even touches on the borg in enterprise so i don't think it's that big a deal they do develop their own villains and basically that's the zindi in season three and uh i think when we get to that andy i think you're going to enjoy that very much um i don't think you know they they were playing off the popularity of uh, first contract first contact not contract and, and, and touching on the Borg, but I don't think, you know, they, I don't think in, in Voyager they seem to go to it too much where they diluted the Borg. I don't think they did it quite so much here. I think this, they were shown as a very, very credible threat. I think they were shown similar to the way they were in Q-Who, uh, where they were so formidable that the, basically the human and aliens on the, the crew could not deal with them. And the only way they were able to get out of it was by blowing up the ship blowing up their ship which they would not have been able to do if it was a true Borg ship they wouldn't have had such easy an easy ability to do that uh and I gotta say there's one thing that disturbs me about the Borg portrayal on these shows is the whole oh if they don't perceive you as a threat they'll leave you alone and I I think that's a, a convenient plot device that you know you could just go onto the ship and put a bomb in there because they don't perceive you as a threat really uh that's a bunch of crap (laughs) <laughs> they are just—they're looking to assimilate everybody. You know, they see you on your ship, they'll take the two seconds it takes to assimilate you, and then they'll go about the business they were on. I—I I never thought that was a realistic uh, thought line. I thought it was more or less, like I said, just a convenient plot device so that they could have an out every once in a while.
1: Yeah, that—that mm. that does kind of sound—that does kind of sound right because, yeah, how how difficult is there—is it for them to shoot out the little tubules out of their hands, pop in the neck, all? Oh, vampire Dracula like and then go back to what they're doing. Yeah, it's it's a plot convenience, but you know, it allows them to get away with, you know, sneaking around on the ship without people getting taken over.
3: But overall I'm saying this is a really good episode of a very underrated series.
1: Hey, hey guys, before we go, I'm getting a weird message. I think it's coming in from the Delta quadrant. Maybe it has something to do with the board. Hold on.
0: two true freaks calling two true freaks come in two true freaks this is associate freak at large Luke Giaconetti contacting you once again from the Delta Quadrant we just shook off a Kazon patrol and while we effect repairs thought I'd get in touch with another Star Trek Voyager book review today we're taking a look at The Escape by Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush both have written several other Star Trek novels both together and independently in various different uh, series for Pocketbooks. This is Pocketbooks number two of the Voyager series. Our story is while scavenging for parts on a ghost planet of abandoned ships, Lieutenant Torres, Ensign Kem, and Neelix are transported back 300,000 years in time, where they are accused of temporal crimes and sentenced to death. Back in the present, an agent of time control tries to scare the crew of Voyager off the planet, Well, a rogue time traveler has plans to commandeer the ship and escape the authorities of time control. Time travel plots uh, beyond the complexity of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure tend to give me a really bad headache. Uh, Now, in this story, it gives the crew of the Voyager headaches as well, so to me that's a plus. You know, the the, uh, temporal problems of traveling through time really creates a lot of paradoxes, and here they address that directly, so I thought that was a real nice step the writing style is very simplistic, There's are shorter sentences, more basic structures, not quite as involved uh, or refined as the previous book, Caretaker, which was by uh, L.A. Graf, uh, of course the pseudonym for a couple of other authors, Julia Eklar and uh, Karen Rose Curzon. So it, it reads very quickly, but it doesn't feel, like I said, as, as refined or as well put together as the previous book. Now this time out, uh, Torres, Paris, and Tuvok have quite a lot to do. Torres is, of course, in the party that's been sent back in time. Paris and Tuvok are working on the, uh, you know, they're working together in the present. Chakotay, once again, though, is not given a very big role. He has a, a few scenes here and there, but ultimately he's more of a background player once again. So the question I have is, looking back at this, was the writing on the wall here in these early days that Chakotay was not a very interesting character and they didn't really know what to do with him? You know, I haven't rewatched the early seasons of Voyager, so I can't uh, confirm that uh, from rewatching the show, I'm only going off memories. And I seem to remember Chicote having more to do, but in these early books, he's been kind of a bit player. <laughs> Talking about this being early on, there's an interesting bit here. The doctor is called Doc Zimmerman, which keeps in line with the pre-production information for the show, which identified him by that name. This, of course, was dropped by the time the series went to actual production, but stuff that was in the pipe before the show actually aired, like this book, and a lot of press kits and stuff, would still refer to him as Doc Zimmerman. It'll be interesting going forward to see when all those references finally end. Overall, this story could work as an episode, probably a two-parter, because there's a lot of talky, costumey-type scenes, and that would work well on a set. But it would be frustrating as an episode, even a two-parter, because a lot of the exciting bits don't actually happen. Because one of the uh, gimmicks of the plot is that every time Torres and Kim and Neal uh, make a plan to do something, their plan is stopped before it even happens because Time Control jumps back in time to before it happens and stops them. So they talk a big plan, and then Time Control comes in and said, "Oh yeah, we we uh, you know we went back and stopped you, so you never did that." So that's just going to get frustrating, watching that, because it's going to be a lot of talking without much action as a payoff. It's a good story. It's not on the same level as the previous book, Caretaker. Yeah, we get less character insight, less action. It's more of a concept piece than anything else. It's still worth reading if you're a Voyager fan, because it's got a really novel setup and a unique problem for the crew to solve. But, uh, you know, if you're not interested in the time travel plot, you're not going to miss anything by skipping this book. The next book is Ragnarok by Nathan Archer, and I'll be very interested in seeing this and see how it uh, compares and contrasts with uh, Caretaker and with uh, this book. And uh, now i got to see if I can talk my wife into watching some of this show with me. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, guys, I'm out of here. Our repairs are done. Next time I get to a broadcast beacon, I'll send you another message. Till then, stay safe out there.
1: Thanks once again, Commander Eddie, for getting in touch with us. We hope to hear from you soon when you get to another audio beacon.
3: So I would give this, uh, what, what are we uh, doing? Are we doing letter grades or number grades?
1: Well, you do letter grades for back the bin. So let's go ahead and do number grades here. Why not? All right.
3: So I, I, I thought this was engaging. I thought it was exciting. I thought it had, like I said, or like Sean said, the horror movie feel about it, uh, I'm giving this a solid eight and a half out of 10.
1: Uh, You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go around the same. I was going to say an eight out of 10. I really enjoyed the opening third of the show being, having nothing to do with the main cast. And uh, to be honest, if the main cast was only tangentially about it and it was kind of uh, a horror movie type thing, like the thing I could have enjoyed that as well, but you know, that it eventually moved into the enterprise cast and, how they dealt with this alien race they have no idea what's going on with you know i thought uh, i thought it worked within the narrative so uh, yeah again i'd probably give it an eight out of ten myself
2: um i'd probably go with seven it was good i enjoyed it i liked the opening scenes it wasn't as good as carbon creek which i think is probably my favorite one mm-hmm. from this year okay so far, but yeah, and also I want to give room for growth because it's my understanding seasons three and four, particularly four, are much better than one and two. And as I end every review, I
3: do have to note that every episode would get a half point higher from me if they had a different theme song.
2: Oh, if they had too. the theme song from Inner Mirror Darkly every week. Ooh, oh yeah. yes, yeah, that was a good one. I should note here,
3: too, I, f- I forgot one of my notes on this was I like kind of the way they played with the score from First Contact uh, when the board went on screen. And yeah,
2: although that was a nice touch.
3: kind of made use of that. I, I thought that, you know, it, it set a good mood. It, it definitely has a horror feel to it as well, so I think it played very, very well in here, and it was also a callback. Oh, yeah. All right, is that it? I think that is.
1: I think we've got, a, got the episode wrapped up, sir.
3: All right, well, Um, once again, it was a pleasure. Everybody should tune in again next month. Uh, I don't remember what episode is next, but we'll do the next episode, whatever one that is.
2: (laughs) Whichever one shows up.
0: Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T W O T R U E F R E A K S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at two true freaks at gmail.com. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan, on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.
3: Well, my, my son <laughs> yesterday, I, I told him, Guten Abend. I told I told my son that I was... Uh, recording this morning he says you're recording you're really recording at six o'clock in the morning this is last night i said well it's my, my friend is in england so the time difference oh well be sure you say pip pip while you're on the phone with him
2: because nice. <laughs> so, we all talk like that i i think so i <laughs> I, I think
3: that's what it is
1: asking how his sweeping job is going and what else <laughs> if you'd <if he'd laughs> like the to fog? go fly a kite yes we get it mary poppins blah blah blah
2: call blimey Mary poppins <laughs>
3: Yeah, I didn't find any specific sound effects to enterprise. So, I think, you know, you just go for that. Yeah, just just go for the Star Trek. Right.
1: Yeah, just go for the bleep bleep
3: bleep 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 noises. Or I may just cut that out and just repeat it over and over again on a loop cuz you did that so well. Bleep 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 bleep. There you go.